This is the Motorcycle Show, episode 13 for January 3rd, 2022. I'm Crash. And I'm Daddy No Fun. Man, it's uh, it's 2022 already, which I feel like every podcast or every person has said about a million times by today. But wow. It's, it's you know, when people joke, it's definitely flown by fast. Yeah. The, the last couple of years with all the lockdowns and the not lockdowns and all the everything, it's just been weird. So yeah, agreed. Um, a quick disclaimer, I guess. Uh, we don't have a lot of motorcycle stuff to talk about, but we have a bunch of camera stuff to talk about. So if you don't really care about photography or cameras or how Steve and I use cameras on motorcycles, then feel free to just skip this one. <laughs> We're not going to know. And uh, it's not going to hurt our feelings. So. We're not going to feel bad about it either, right? Yeah. Um, we, we, uh, we haven't done a lot of motorcycle stuff. So, but we have been talking about camera stuff and buying camera stuff for a while. And my bike's still out of commission right now. So right. Yeah. I don't, even, I don't have one. Yeah. So, so yeah, we're in a weird yeah. dead spot there. I'm sure people are tired of hearing me talk about that. I can't figure out what new motorcycle to buy. So we're, we're going to, we'll, we'll move I assume on that's still a thing. <laughs> yeah. But I don't want to talk about it today. So that's okay. That's okay. It's very triggering for me to know that I can't figure out what I want. So I don't think we'll move on. Yeah. Okay. So uh, without further ado, if you, like I said, if you don't want to hear us talk about camera stuff, uh, photography as it relates to motorcycle and often, often as it relates to other things, then uh, thank you for listening this far. And we hope that you enjoy our regular motorcycle content when we are able to resume that shortly. Bye. Don't leave. You'll, you'll <laughs> probably enjoy it either way. So. Um. So originally, a couple of weeks ago, you proposed the idea that we'd have a discussion about how we carry camera gear on the motorcycle, specifically from a user of a micro four thirds camera perspective, because we both had cameras in that lens format. And mm -hmm. uh, since then, we both have uh, jettisoned cameras in that lens format and have opted for much larger, fancier cameras. Yeah. yeah. So. And, and, you know... <laughs> It's one of those things where, first of all, you and I talk about cameras independently of the show a lot. Yeah. So we, off the show, we discuss photography in general a lot. Just curious, Chris, when did you first, like when was the first time you picked up a camera and decided, I like this, you know, like mm. I like taking pictures and making stuff with it. Yeah. Um, I guess like, so I had a little 110 film camera when I was a kid mm. that I remember taking around with me and getting the pictures developed a few times. Um, but I don't have, I didn't have like a strong, like sort of artistic connection to that. It was more just like, Oh, I went on this field trip with school and that was a cool thing I saw. So I took a picture of it. Um, and those pictures mostly sucked because they were taken on like a really basic cheap 110 film camera by a child. So, you know, mm -hmm. we're not, looking at like high quality stuff here. This is the first like camera related memory I have. Um, and then fast forward to probably five or five years ago or so, I bought a interchangeable lens Canon camera, the EOS M3 or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't have a viewfinder. It was, I, I didn't know anything about cameras at the time. It just I looked around and was like, uh, yeah, this one looks like it has the things I wanted. Cause I specifically wanted to be able to record videos and have an external mic input. 
So I ended up kind of unintentionally buying like more of a vlogging camera than a photography camera. And then I took it to a couple of motorcycle shows and never, never liked the results I got from the pictures. And I knew that it wasn't the camera's fault. I knew that it was my fault because uh, I didn't know how to use a camera outside of auto mode. Um, and I try, I think I recorded a video or two with it, but nothing, you know, I, video editing is its own entirely different beast that just takes so long. Which I'm do. finding out now. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't, it's, I've learned a little bit more about it. I'm a little more comfortable now, but it's still just a very long process and I don't want to do it most of the time, but maybe it's because I'm not used to it. If I got used to it, I'd probably get a lot faster at it. Yeah. I Um, think the people that do it on a regular basis and have a workflow, it's pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, Like that's the way I am with photos. Like you give me photos. I know exactly what I need to do with them. I do the thing. I spit them back out and I'm done. But uh, video, I'm not comfortable to that level yet. But yeah, so I got a Canon primarily vlogging camera and tried to take pictures with it. Um, and then during the beginning of 2020, when everything shut down and I had a lot more free time on my hands, I took a photography class online and was really surprised at how much I liked it. I kind of originally set out to, I basically my philosophy was cool. I go to cool looking places, like whether it's on hikes or in the Navy or traveling on a motorcycle, I would like to be able to take pictures of those things that don't suck. Uh, cause I would often take pictures and be like, well, I took a picture of this really cool view I saw, but the picture looks dumb and it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. So the photography class was super helpful. It got me out of auto mode, uh, and got me to the point where I could use the different settings and understood what I was doing each with each of them. Cause like, you know, somebody like maybe you or anybody could like tell me what that setting does, but I didn't understand why you would use it, you know? Right. Right. Um, like any one of the three, uh, components that make up an exposure, like shutter speed, aperture, and ISO. I'm like, cool. So what you're telling me is I could get essentially the same uh, exposure technically by manipulating any one of those three variables, but why would you want to manipulate one over another in any given situation? Uh, So yeah, the class was really helpful with that. Uh, My friend Brandon, who you and I were talking about, um, is actually looking at taking the same class through Coursera.com that I did, mostly because it's super cheap and it like, got the job done. Um, so yeah, I guess sort of finally committed to getting myself like to not being afraid of manual settings, uh, about two years ago now. Yeah. And honestly, like, so my, just to kind of, uh, mirror what you said, my experience goes way back to, to right. when I was yeah. about 13 years old and photography, motorcycles and firearms have always been a constant hobby for me since I've been very young. Mm-hmm. I mean, all three of them, maybe motorcycles a little later cause I lusted over them for a long time, but couldn't have one until I was 18 and yep. you know, I had to save up the money, but yeah, same here cam- with motorcycles. Yeah. The cameras and photography, my mom introduced me to it when I was really young. She gave me a Kodak 35 millimeter and, um, you know, I learned how to process in a darkroom at a very young age. I had a darkroom when I was in high school in the house. Uh, it, it, so it's always been around. And then I actually shot professionally for a long time mm-hmm. as a photojournalist. And I did architectural photography. And I did the first television real estate show that was done on still images that was transferred over to video. Mm-hmm. But as far as photography related to the motorcycle, you know, I've, I've, I've had, and I'm not a fanboy of any brand, you know, like I'll use pretty much anything mm-hmm. and I've used 
a lot of different brands from Minolta, Pentax, Nikon in the film, Hasselblad, medium format, Mamaya, right. four, four by five cameras, you know, and then digital, my first digital camera was, man, I want to say it was a Canon. Actually, it was a Nikon and it had a really weird shape to it. And I can't remember what it was called. It almost looked flat and it mm-hmm. kind of, the lens kind of twisted. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is I don't have a clue where any of those original photographs I took on that camera are like, I'm sure they're buried on some hard drive somewhere. Right. Because at the time I didn't really understand, you know, redundancy of, of images and, you know, photographers always say if it doesn't exist in three places, it doesn't exist. And then I'm from there, I moved to, um, Canon cameras for a long time. I had a, a, a 50 D no, a D 50 Canon that I used. And then a couple other ones I don't remember. And then I, I had something in between and buying that and the Olympus and the, the Olympus, the micro four thirds I bought specifically for use on a motorcycle. Yeah. And I'll, and at the time I'll divide, you know, the still photography and the video work because I've never, I never really used the Olympus cameras for video, especially on a motorcycle, either I had a GoPro with me or I was using the Cena yeah. cameras that they had. Yeah. And I've had GoPros and used them in the past and ended up with hours and hours of video that I didn't know what to do with. Yeah. When I was in um, Sedona, we went to uh, Overland Expo yeah. and I had the, the camera, the GoPro mounted on my helmet and it was pointing in the wrong direction. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because of how I like tried to figure out how to mount it while I was looking at, and I got a lot of really cool footage of the roadway in front of the motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and nothing else. So, right. Yeah. Those were lessons that were hard learned. And then, uh, you know, we filmed the first ride up the divide trip on those scenic cameras and it, they're not phenomenal. You know, yeah. the audio sucks on them. And, but, so you and I always have talked about, you know, what we were going to get. And then I, yeah, got the you were a huge, you were a huge proponent and influence on me getting a micro four thirds camera. So, um, I guess if anybody, to anybody who's remaining, who's still listening, uh, there's pretty much three dominant sizes of sensor in terms of digital cameras or, or interchangeable lens cameras. And they correspond to different sizes of film. Um, a micro four thirds sensor is the same size as a one ten film. And, um, it's half the size of a 35 millimeter film and the like main dominant, uh, sensor size is a, is called full frame, which is the equivalent of a 35 millimeter. Are you uh, sure about the hat is one ten size? That doesn't make sense to me. I'm pretty sure that's what I, one ten is friggin' tiny. That's like camera that I thought one ten size was the size of a smartphone. Um, I'm pretty sure that 110 film is the same size as a micro four thirds. Let me, let me go ahead and camera. talk and I'll, but yeah, if we find out that I'm wrong, then we can, uh, publicly shame me here while we're recording. Uh, but yeah. And then there's APS-C, which is basically halfway between micro four thirds and 35 millimeter. Uh, so it's two thirds the size of a 35 millimeter film. Uh, and so you've got the the result of that is well there's a million and one results but the main one is and as it comes to like packing and carrying things is the size of the lens required to get a given image so you need if you want to take an image that looks normal to the human eye uh you would want like a 50 millimeter lens on a full frame 35 millimeter sensor you could get that same image with a lens half the size on a micro four thirds camera 
which means the lens takes up way less space in your pack. So if you're backpacking or you're, you know, you don't have a ton of storage space on your motorcycle, or you want to be able to carry a ton of gear in a small amount of space, Micro Four Thirds is super uh, convenient in that way. The tricky part is that format seems to be getting smaller, and it's 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 a user base. It's market share is like smaller and smaller every day. It seems like so. My yeah, I, watching yeah, machine is making some wild noises right now. I heard it gurgling. Yeah. I, and I think really the kind of thing that started to get me thinking about it is when Olympus sold off the imaging division. Yeah. Because we were kind of talking like a little bit worried that, oh man, what, what's going to happen here? So I, I don't, you know, um, I don't think it's going to go away because they rebranded the product. And for, for to, to kind of, I don't know if you clarified this, Micro Four Thirds isn't um, proprietary to Olympus. It's an open format. Right, yeah. So yeah. The, the camera brands that tend to use it now are, were Olympus, now it's just called OMD, and then uh, Panasonic's Lumix, Lumix brand. Yeah. And then also Blackmagic film cameras, uh, not or cinema cameras, Blackmagic cinema cameras, also use the micro four thirds format which is really you know that's a great thing if you're um if you're limited to a budget because the black magic camera in the micro four thirds is not very expensive compared yeah if you're wanting to make movies that's a it's a really reasonable way to go right um and the the olympus cameras also olympus and panasonic lumix I'm just going to say Micro Four Thirds instead of having to remember both of the brands off the top of my head ever again. Micro Four Thirds cameras had really good in-body image stabilization before everybody else, um, it seemed like. Or at least their their prosumer, you know, like enthusiast model cameras had better image stabilization than like larger cameras of the same sort of echelon or same tier in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was really interesting. Like you could get a lot of image stabilization in a relatively cheap body from Olympus or Panasonic. And they, and they really, they, they come a long way on that in body image stabilization. I think the current, the Mark III, the one, the camera you had was like five way or seven way image stabilization in the body. Yeah. And something like seven to 10 stops, you know, it was a lot. Like I could get basically for anybody that's like, what does that mean? It means that you can shoot handheld shots and it'll like mitigate your shaky hands because you've had too much coffee or you're, you know, amped you up much or slower shutter speed at a much too. slower shutter, shutter speed. So um, I've been able to shoot things at a pretty shockingly low shutter speed sometimes and not have any perceived like camera shake in the shot, which was really cool. Um, and, and and they really they're not they're very technologically advanced cameras too. Yeah. With what's available, especially in the the EM1 series of Olympus. Now I had the Mark II, you had the Mark III. Yep. And they're phenomenal cameras and they make a a 1X, I think it's called. It's designed for sports shooters. The other thing too, that's very, you know, sports shooters love micro four thirds, some of them, because they can get more reach on the lens. And if they're, a lot of them only shoot JPEGs. So it'll output the, the the buffers are pretty fast on these cameras too. So you yeah, can like shoot at really at high frame rates. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they have a lot of pros. Um, it's just, I was always intrigued by a full frame sensor camera. And when they first came out, they were way, way past my price range. Like, sure. I think they were like six or seven grand for a body when full frames yeah. first came out. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just sold a house. So 
I had some extra money, <laughs> which was handy. I would not have, I, I switched, you and I both recently bought Sony a7 IV cameras, which are full frame sensor cameras, which means now our lenses are twice as big as they were before. Twice at as a, heavy. At, at least. I mean, re- realistically, um, saying twice as big isn't totally accurate. I would say that like the 25 millimeter Olympus lens that you and I used was less than half the size of the 50 millimeter Sony lens, which is, is which is its equivalent. So there's a big jump there. And basically like I had, I had a camera bag that I used to be able to fit, you know, my camera and like two or three lenses in it. And now I can fit my camera with a lens attached and that's about it. Yeah. Um, so it's a definitely a big jump in sort of what I'm going to have to deal with going forward. And same thing for you. Uh, I think for me, I've been, I've, I've been doing a lot more portrait stuff than I ever thought I would. And I really wanted the big ass sensor <laughs> for portraits. Well, it, it, for it, Listen, when you print, which I want to go back to doing, cause I used to print a lot of the photos that I would shoot mm-hmm. and they were, some of them were hanging in my house. They're, you know, they're, they're, they look great, but when you do it on a full frame, man, they're just like, ta- like I shot some test pictures this weekend in like goofing around around the swimming pool, Marcy Lake, like in the hot tub and stuff. And it caught the bubbles in the hot tub completely freeze frame and they're razor sharp. Like it's unbelievable the clarity of these images because of the full frame sensor. And you know, it's, it's definitely, when you look at a comparison of a full frame sensor and a micro four thirds, it's not slightly smaller. It's a lot smaller for the micro four thirds. And in between those, there's like three different versions of APS-C size and then the Fovion sensor, which is, which is a little bit bigger than the micro four thirds, but the difference between an APS-C on Canon and the APS-H on Canon is a huge difference, you know? Yeah. And then you get down into like the really small sensor sizes for cell phones and things like that. And what really would it, you know, most people can't tell the difference looking on the internet. Uh-uh. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. especially when you're, if you're looking on Instagram, you're looking at an, at, a, at an image that's 1080 by 1080 pixels, mm-hmm. which is like a one megapixel image. So yeah, it's right. not we're even talking a one megapixel, about a, I don't think. We're talking about a 33 megapixel sensor. We're talking about being able to have photos that are over 36 inch large, you know, it, and printed that are going yeah, to be with, razor sharp with like no upscaling of the photo at all right natively um, yeah and like like you were saying the it's less than half the size like yeah the basically if you think of like the if you have a computer monitor and the diagonal is you know 20 millimeters and then you have another one that the diagonal is 40 millimeters then what you actually have is a screen the 40 millimeter one is like actually four times the the area mm-hmm. which is the case with micro four thirds versus full frame the diagonal is twice the diagonal for a full frame sensor so yes it is half the size in terms of like half the diagonal like corner to corner but you have four times the sensor surface area Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a big jump it is a big jump and the and every like like you said there's more than doubling sometimes on the size and weight of the lenses Mm, yeah we so uh, there's a lens that chris and i both own that was a 40 to 150 so if you were to figure that out in 35 millimeters, it's an 80 to 300 or yeah. Yeah. And, um, the comparable lens in full frame is a 70 to 200. The, the size difference is immense. That 40 to 150 
is actually a little smaller or the same size as a 24 to 70 in a full frame. And yeah. we had a 12 to 40, which would be a 24 to 80. That was a fraction, you know, the, the weight of some of the primes that they sell for the full frame. So we're making, it's a sacrifice to go up to these lenses. Plus the cost is more too. There's more glass, there's more engineering. Yep. There, it's like double the price, right? Yeah. I mean, just the body of the camera alone was, I mean, just comparing, if you were to go out and buy an, an OMD, they're, the camera I just had, the EM1 Mark III, which is their sort of equivalent of the A7. Right. Um, if you were to buy the EM1 Mark III, I want to say it's like 2200 bucks. And the Sony a7 IV is 25. Well, and this is the really cool thing about the, the products now that are coming out and the prices is they've never been lower for full frame cameras. I heard Fuji's coming out with a full frame. Interesting. I'm, sh- I'm shocked gonna, that, yeah. I was going to say that Fuji is probably, if if somebody was looking for a camera that they want to pack small, like pack relatively small, take on a motorcycle, take in a backpack, I would strongly encourage people to think about Fuji. Um, they take great pictures, the control, every, everybody that I know that shoots Fuji, my friend, Sam up in LA, like they really loves the ergonomics of them and the APS, their, their lenses are made for APS-C sensors instead of being a full frame sensor or a full frame lens that you're sticking on an APS-C camera. Right. So the lenses you get the, you get some benefit of the smaller size, but you still have a bigger sensor than the Olympus or Panasonic and Fuji doesn't seem like they're going to stop developing anytime soon where Olympus was like, we don't want this camera business anymore. So you do something with it. Right. Right. And, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the Fuji's image processing. I own a Fuji um, X100F, which is a, it's a very interesting camera and very unique because it's a true rangefinder digital camera, which are, are kind of unheard of. You can find rangefinder style digital cameras, but the X100 series is a true rangefinder, meaning that it's got, it has both an optical and an EVF viewfinder. An EVF is an electronic viewfinder. The optical viewfinder, you're actually looking through a glass viewfinder. Now it's not a DSLR. You're not looking through the lens. You're looking through a viewfinder, but there is in rangefinders, they use these, um, a, a tool built in the camera mechanically that allowed you to focus without looking through the lens where you kind of lined up two images inside that viewfinder. The Fuji Mm -hmm. has the exact same thing in manual, or you can pull a lever and it'll switch over to an electronic viewfinder, which it was also very clear. You know, some of the things that camera didn't have was there was no tilting or articulating screen in the back. It was fixed and it's a fixed lens too. So it's not interchangeable lens. It's the equivalent of about a 37 millimeter lens, I think but they made two screw on adapters, one to make it more of a, like around a 28 millimeter and then one to make it closer to a 50 millimeter lens, which are kind of heavy pieces of glass that you screwed in front of the lens. But I I carry that camera a lot and I love it. And what's really cool about it is that the image processor in it can, they've set algorithms in it to duplicate any Fuji film that was made from the film generation, any of those emulsion types. So you can shoot in Acros, which was their black and white film. You can shoot in Velvia. It's really kind of a cool camera, but it's also a little bit of a niche market, I think. Now, would that be something you'd carry on a motorcycle? You could. It's smaller than what we have, a little smaller than the the Olympuses. It's pretty flat, but you're limited because of the fixed focal length on the lens. And, you know, you made a recommendation. I would also recommend if you're... 
if your goal is to capture images it's strictly for the internet that you're not you know you want to put them on Facebook or Instagram, you want to um, maybe do a little bit of video work and vlogging, I would recommend the Sony ZV-1, which is a compact camera that uh, it's a fixed lens. It's a relatively fast lens and it's got an incredible microphone on it. There's a three capsule microphone on it that's considered a shotgun microphone because it's directional. It's not, nothing like the microphones that come on most cameras. It, it's even it's so good they even include a little dead cat for 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 the wind. Yeah, yeah, and it and it's a dead just, cat is a like little like a furry uh, accessory that covers the wind, the microphone, and blocks the wind. And yeah, they are yeah, colloquially sorry, nicknamed a dead cat. We're not really killing because they kind of look like a dead cat. Like right. if, if you shoved a microphone up the inside of a dead cat. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you look at like, you know, production companies and news and they've got these. Oh yeah, mics. for sure. Yeah. Like if you, if you ever see like a TV show that is about a TV show and you see the boom hanging down at any point, like there's usually a big furry thing stuffed on the end of it. The dead cat. The dead cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that, you know, like now we've got to like rethink the way we're carrying cameras because comparatively, well, you actually did a comparison on the bodies and sent it to me. There, there's not a whole yeah. lot of difference in the body size. Yeah. The actual camera itself is really close to the same size. The Sony is a little bit thicker and I think a little bit taller, but not enough to really make a difference. It's the lenses that are at least double the size, sometimes uh, more. more. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the that's one of those funny things about cameras. Um, when you see like a 70 to 200 lens, which um, it's basically anything over what is considered normal focus uh, or normal focal length is it's called a telephoto lens. And 70 to 200 is a medium telephoto range. It's not a super long range. You're not like, you're not going to put this lens on a camera and then like the moon is going to fill up your whole sensor. It's right. You know, you're not going to like look across three city blocks and into somebody's window. Like it's like you're using some kind of telescope or something, but this lens looks like a freaking telescope. Like it's enormous. <laughs> it looks like it should zoom in to, you know, be able to see, I should be able to see your house from my house, you know, <laughs> except for the curvature, the curvature of the earth. But and it um, looks very professional because the Sony does, telephoto yeah. lenses are white, usually like Canons are. And, mm-hmm. and that's why people always look, oh, that looks like a professional photographer. It, it's funny because I was thinking about this the other day when I was going through all the lenses and the gear that I'm selling, the Olympus gear, is I had the 75 to 300, right? Mm-hmm. Their, their zoom, which wasn't, it's not a spectacular lens. It's a, it's a consumer lens. The only picture I have that I've ever shot of the moon that looks decent is with that lens at 300 millimeters. That's an equivalent of a 600 millimeter lens. Yep. So I'm not, you know, even if I were to put a 2X converter on the 70 to 200, that makes puts me at 400 millimeters, 200 yep. shy of what I shot that moon picture on. So yep. If I wanted to do that on, again, I'd probably have to rent a lens. You know? I have, I, I have a similar photo. I, I used, I had a 2X, 2X teleconverter, which is just a little magnifying glass that goes between the lens and your body of your camera to multiply the focal length times whatever the multiplier is. So in this case, two times. And I took, when I was with my kids, uh, the last, the last time I used my Olympus camera was I took my kids to Disneyland and I shot some shots of the fireworks and the moon the first night we were there. And I had my two X teleconverter and my 70 
or 40 to 150. So I was shooting at the equivalent of 300. So same boat, say, uh, the mm-hmm. full frame equivalent of a 600 millimeter lens. Um, and the only thing that I, the only, the only way I think I could pull that off now without having to buy too many things is if I had a teleconverter now and I put it on the 70 to 200 lens so that I had an equivalent of a 400 lens. And then I used the APS-C crop feature of our cameras to automatically crop in the sensor so that it's displaying what is equivalent of like a 600 millimeter. Right. And that's not like a digital crop that actually crops into the sensor. So you, you reduce the amount of megapixels you have, but you're not cropping into the image. Yeah. Like a, like a digital zoom is not a crop of the sensor. Yeah. Digital zoom is like, if you, whenever you're looking at something on your screen and you zoom in, it's doing the same thing. You're not actually adding any data you're just like moving your face closer right right um it's the it, the image doesn't look as good as it does with a crop sent like cropping into the sensor because yeah. you still have a clean image you're just you're less megapixels so you're not gonna be able to enlarge it as big but you're still gonna get a great image you know yeah. i never told you this do you know that somebody accused me of stealing that image from them really yeah there, i got a message on instagram when the i moon? first the moon shot that i had huh. and uh I sent the guy a screenshot of all my images, like a contact sheet, basically. Yeah. With the metadata from it saying, dude, it's from my camera. You know, like. It's also you know, like, the moon. Like. I know. The guy said doesn't it was exactly the his same, shot. Like, I, listen, it wasn't even fantastic. It was okay. Yeah. You know, there's some phenomenal moon shots out there. I just got lucky with snapping maybe, you know. 60 or 70 shots that night i got one that was decent one so yeah i got lucky and had an okay shot it, it, but this guy got really bent out of shape about That's it funny actually it was on reddit i posted it on reddit on on one of the forums for moonshots or something and the guy got all bent out of shapes and i i stole the image from him and whatever but yeah yeah that's you funny know, now having to deal with this much longer glass it's not going to be well i can let's say you know you and i carry the cameras differently i carried my camera in a tank bag true with yeah one or we two were gonna we, this is like vaguely motorcycle related now weird yeah. and even in that type of carrying capacity i couldn't carry the, the 40 to 150 i carried the 20 the 12 to 40 in there with and i think i had a, like a small prime maybe yeah. a nine nine to 18 zoom which is real tiny it's a collapsible lens right that's not going to be the case now unless i just carry the body with a 50 or yeah you know i used on my last motorcycle trip i used my i did not have a tank bag because i didn't think about buying a tank bag until the day before the trip and the only real reason i wanted a tank bag was to carry camera stuff so what i did instead was i put the 40 to 150 so the medium telephoto lens i put that in a in its bag because it has like a it comes in like a little semi barely protective little pouch bag i put that in its bag and then i put the camera itself on my camelback's strap using a device called a peak design capture which is just a basically it's a custom made or specially made for this device tripod foot that mounts on the bottom of your camera that has little grooves 
in it that allow the peak design capture to lock in using a little spring-loaded cam. And it was rock solid the whole trip. Uh, I know some people, some people don't like using them. I've been using one almost ever since, well, basically ever since I got an Olympus camera, I've been using one and I love it. It's because I have a backpack on so often anyway, and I almost always want to carry more stuff than I really need. So, so being able to like throw the camera on my strap and just walk around and have both my hands free or ride a motorcycle and have both my hands free and then just like pull over real quick or in a few cases, put the bike in cruise control and take the camera off, <laughs> take the camera off my strap and uh, take a few shots. Totally not while riding down the road. Uh, well, let me ask you when you, you didn't have the strap on the camera as a pr- backup protection, like around your neck or anything like that. No, I okay. had a um, oh a little wrist strap that I would put on. So I, I did have I would I had the when the camera was locked into the clip, it was sta- it, that was it that was the only thing holding it on. When I would take the camera off, especially the one or two times that I did it while riding, don't recommend it, but I did it. Um, I used a little wrist strap, so I'd like slip my hand through the wrist strap and cinch that down onto my wrist, and then grab the camera. So that if I dropped it, it was just hanging. Were you able to do that one-handed to release the, the little clip and stuff? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the orient the, the little the button that pops the cam over is basically you line it up with the grip on the camera. Um if you're if you're hang if you're mounting the, the clip horizontally, that you so you drop it in from the top, you just line it up with the grip basically. So you push the button and then lift the camera up and out. Yeah, that would freak me out. I don't know, especially, I don't think I'd even attempt it moving, but, you know, I mean, stopped, it's not a big deal. I think I'd be okay. Cause that, you know, that, I, I don't think I ever took a camera out of the, the tank bag while I was moving to take a picture. That was the one cool thing about the, the scenic cameras. There was a command you could do to shoot a still image on it. Yeah. That is pretty nice. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was just, the images were not great. Right. Yeah. I, so I have done that and I did have an issue once where I had a Canon, no, not a Canon and Olympus EM five Mark three, which, or Mark two, I don't know, whatever one the most recent was at the time I had one of those and it had a plastic shell about the body of the camera was plastic. And I had the medium telephoto lens on the camera and it was hanging by my strap and I was on a hike and I bent down to go under some low branches and the weight of the lens pulling at that particular angle on the camera basically torqued the bottom of the camera off. So it like ripped a hole in the bottom of the camera. The camera actually still worked. It didn't actually damage the internals at all, but obviously it wasn't definitely not weather sealed anymore with a like no, and, yeah, the giant difference between that body and the EM1, the EM1s are, are magnesium there. Yes, and so is the Sony yeah. A7 IV. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pretty durable cameras. They're not, you know, they're not light duty and they're they're weather sealed. Um, yeah, the EM5 is also weather sealed, which I appreciate. Um, yeah. But it was a plastic body. Um, I, I was, I, it was so new. I was able to get Olympus to fix it under warranty. And they're like, yeah, well, that shouldn't really have happened. We're sorry for that. Here you go. Um, that's good. And then yeah. I sold the camera cause I bought the EM one because I knew I wanted to be able to do that again. And in this particular, now that I have much, much heavier lenses, I have mounted a camera clip foot 
on my heavier lens, my my new medium telephoto lens, because it weighs a hundred thousand pounds and is made of um, like pure lead, apparently. Um, and so I mounted a, a foot to it so that if I am walking around with that lens on, I can just clip the lens into the thing and be fine. I, I definitely want to see what that's going to look like when you do it, because it's going to be sticking out. I'll show you. Um, I'll, I mean, not right this second, but I can throw yeah. a backpack on and show you right, real pretty quick. I mean, I have a backpack with a capture clip on it already. So that will yeah, take and that's no kinda, time and at I'm, all. And I'm, honestly, I'm considering that now, the more you've been talking about it, is figuring out what backpack I would use to to carry the cameras on the bike and then putting a capture clip on the front of it. But I, I don't know. I, again, I like the idea of having it in a tank bag where it's not out in the elements and it's... Yeah, that makes know. sense. I mean, I had, I especially like, you know, I was on my Super Duke, so I had a tall windscreen. Um, the camera clip was positioned so that it was hanging pretty low on my uh, on my chest. So it was like down under the height of the windscreen for sure. Um, I didn't I didn't see like evidence of bugs hitting it while I was riding. The only thing I ever had happened during that trip, which was I don't know, almost two thousand miles, um, was I lost a lens hood because mm. it got like caught the wind just wrong one time and spun off. So yeah, I don't I even know a, if I would have bought a new yeah. one. So let me, now that we talk about that, what's your, the, your take on lens hoods? Cause I've heard it's funny in the last week or two watching videos and stuff, you know, there, there are two things that I see people differ on, which is protective filters, like UV filters and lens hoods. What's your take on both of them? Uh, I don't put a piece of glass in front of a piece of glass generally. Right. Um, I don't, I, so I, so UV filters, I don't use them because um, thousands of dollars of my money went into buying this incredibly fancy coated special coating magic piece of glass, several, many pieces of glass from Sony that I don't want to put some cheap shitty piece of glass in front of it. That's going to capture, catch the light in some weird way and cause an ugly ass lens flare or a weird color or something. Right. Um, but I do use lens hoods most of the time as a method of protecting the lens in case I drop yeah, it. Yeah, I feel the same I way. don't yeah. care so much about the lens hoods protection. Unless I'm shooting in like bright ass sunlight, then cool. I'm ha- happy to have the lens hood shading the lens from the sun yeah. too. But generally, it's just there in case I smack the lens into something. Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel the exact same way. It kind of gives you that standoff between the the outside element and whatever you're yeah. working around. I mean, with. I had a camera. My first my first Olympus camera was on its tripod. I was trying to take like a you know remote, like I was trying to take a selfie with the damn thing, and the wind blew the tripod over, and it fell over a guardrail and landed on some gravel, and it just happened to land perfectly, so that the lens went like straight down at the gravel. So the lens hood did not help me there. But in almost any other case, the lens hood would have protected the lens from getting, you know, the front element on the lens from getting all scratched up. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, Olympus's repair prices are reasonable. And a lot of times flare is easy to deal with, like just your hand. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah. yeah, You just like hold your hand out of the frame and block the sun with it. You can be like, oh, and there's the flare gone. And a lot of times you'll look on, if you ever see somebody doing filming with a matte box in the front of a camera, yeah. like for video work, you'll see these barn doors on the matte box that are used for the same thing where you can lower the barn door down to keep, even if it's studio lighting to keep flare from coming in or, or yeah, you just have little flaps to put yeah. it away. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, 
it, the whole way of carrying things now has got to be, I, as a matter of fact, I even had to replace my strap because the camera is so much heavier than what I've been used to that mm. I, I used a, a Peak Design slide light and I went back to a slide because this, the slide light was kind of cutting into me a little bit. It wasn't comfortable with that um, 24 to to 80 lens on there, 24 to 70 lens. And I didn't... Yeah. I, I, I have that same have, strap and I haven't really ever used it, but. Well, I'm not, you know, camera straps tend to get in the way sometimes. Uh, I'll, I'll opt not to use them if I'm shooting indoors, like in a studio setting, or if I'm doing something specific, I'll take the strap off. Yeah. But if I'm walking around somewhere, especially with street photography, I like having a strap on. Right. Um, and I am always wearing a backpack, so I'm right. always clipped in. So it's the same idea. Um, the other day when I was with my friend, Brandon in Chesapeake, I, I went, I took a weekend trip, right? Basically just around new year's to go home and visit my hometown, which I hadn't been to in 10 years. Um, I had the strap on the camera for like a couple hours. Cause I only, I was only using one lens and I didn't, I what's left everything else in the car. It's funny how many people, when I'm wearing the, the, uh, Fuji camera around my neck, I tend to shorten that strap up a little bit. So it's like chest high. How many mm-hmm. people walk up to me and go, oh, you got an old fashioned camera. Oh yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah, from the front, you look at it, it looks like a Leica or something, you know? Right. Yeah. It, it's really kind of deceiving for people. And I'm like, no, it's kind of new actually. But depending on what kind of camera, it depends on how they wear the strap. And I like the idea. I like peak designs methodology with the slide when you're using a long lens. Yeah. It's off your hip you know, your shoulders taken up the weight and then you're just kind of grabbing the camera and sliding it up into view instead of picking it up. Um, yeah, I, uh, peak design, I, I've, I've bought too many things from peak design lately. Um, and I feel like I, I don't, I almost don't want to like them so much just because I have bought so much of their stuff. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I feel like, okay, this is too much. I need to find somebody else to. So if you don't, if you guys don't know who we're talking about, Peach Design is a company that kind of started with a Kickstarter project. And I believe the first product that they made was the capture clip, right? Or maybe I, even this, the strap, the slide. I, I don't remember what the first product they made was, but. But they're, they've gotten to the point now where they're making you know, camera bags, travel bags. They make phone cases now that are pretty cool. And I actually got in on the Kickstarter for the phone case. I have all the stuff here, but I've yet to put it on my phone because I was a little disappointed in the phone case being that I felt a little flimsy compared to what I use now, which is a mouse case and mouse cases are bulletproof. I mean, and they're not huge like a pelican or um otterbox otterbox yeah they're smaller yeah Yeah, i don't know i um i have the peak design travel bag i have their toiletry bag i just today bought a 20 liter everyday bag from rei because i'm gonna play around with it oh you did get it yeah i've i realized so there was an rei locally that had one in stock and rei has a year-long return policy so it's like cool i get to play with this thing and if i like it i will keep it if i don't like it i can return it anytime in the next year so i was gonna i I brought the two boundary bags i have here i was gonna send you pictures to see if you wanted to because i have a boundary bag prima system in there uh yeah I think, I think what I want doesn't exist. Um, and the closest thing I've seen so far is that, uh, vaporware Peter McKinnon bag that 
Um, I, I don't think it's actually vaporware. I just think that there's a good chance that supply chain things really screwed the Which nomadic. one? You said it was a different bag. The Nomad, yeah. what, 25 liter? 25 liter from Nomadic. So Nomadic made, Peter McKinnon is this like kind of YouTube famous photographer who, yeah, ended up partnering with this company called Nomadic to make a camera bag that's a pretty sizable traveling like camera backpack. But it's a little bit too big for most people for everyday use. And so back in, I want to say April, they announced a expansion of the lineup. So there would be a 25 liter bag, a little sling bag, and then some like uh, small accessory pouches. And I really like the look of the 25 liter bag in terms of... So it's not the one that's the 20 to 30 liter expandable? No. Okay. Um, and so the, the one that I like, it's, it's very modular. Um, basically he, like, so like many companies are doing now, he uses sort of like a modular camera cube system where you can put as many camera pieces as you want in the bag to expand the camera storage or contract it basically. And then Mm. the top loader pocket expands, get back down to fill up that extra space. So if you use one camera cube, you can think of the bag as having like three, think of the bag in thirds and you can have anywhere from one to three camera sections and the remaining sections, if you don't have all three in, just are the top loader part of the bag. So you could put two sections in there and have like room for that stuff and then you'd have like the top third would be open to other sundries and or you could pull out one of the camera cubes and push that top pouch down all the way. You can see this 25 liter bag. I don't see it anywhere. Yeah. Oh, wait, the McKinnon Cube Pack 21 liter? That's not it, is it? No. no. So that's the thing. It's not on their website at all. Um, they released it on Kickstarter. There's a bunch of reviews, uh, like, or like first looks from various other YouTube people and like, like pretty, pretty well known, like YouTube uh, backpack reviewers, like Pack Hacker and stuff like that, have reviewed mm-hmm. this bag. Like, they made samples of it at least. Um, but I think what happened, I haven't seen any announcements on it. Obviously I didn't back the Kickstarter back then. Um, but they, uh, it is probably just a supply chain thing where like they couldn't get the bags to production when they wanted to, their original timeline was to have them released in November, but they did not come out. Oh yeah. I see this guy, pack hacker. That's got it. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting system, I guess. Cause the, the thing is I've, I've got a bag from, think tank photo that is you can get to the camera compartment from either side or the part the back panel that's against your back i like that i like the versatility of that but its camera compartment is bigger than i need it to be mm-hmm. and so i did but the backpack's physical size out like is what i want so i wanted something that was basically like 30 percent less camera storage so that i can have like kind of a normal amount of backpack bullshit that I carry around with me all the time. <laughs> and then also throw my camera in the bottom of it if I want to and have like ready, quick access to it instead of just tossing my camera in the bottom of a backpack, like another backpack. So what did you think of the, the, the one I told you about the, the wander, the wander provoke. Yeah. Um, it looks like it meets all the requirements. I just don't like looking at it. Really? I really don't. I don't like the handles. You think it's ugly? Yeah. I think the handles on top, like the, the grab yeah. handles look real weird. I saw somebody refer to it as like a spaceman backpack. <laughs> and I kind of see that. Like, right. it looks it looks like it belongs in a 
um, the sci-fi show, The Expanse. Um, I'm on, fun of that show. It's oh, I love that show. Yeah. I love that show, and I'm I I have the final book in the series. I haven't started yet, but I'm on the third book right now. But yeah, I I think that that backpack looks like it belongs in an episode of The Expanse. Uh, like just based on the color scheme and the overall vibe of the bag. That's not knocking it. It just doesn't. Well, I'm looking I, at this this pack hackers review of this Peter McKinnon bag. Now we we now we've morphed from you know cameras into how to camera, carry cameras around camera because you, inevitably if, if you're going to get one, you're going to have to get the other. Yeah, I mean you can't yeah. like especially if you get an interchangeable lens camera. If you get a camera with a fixed lens, like a point and shoot or something like that, you can find a padded sleeve and toss it in whatever, or maybe you have something small enough so you can pocket. Um, or maybe you wear cargo shorts and you could pocket anything. I don't know. Uh, and, and, and look, another solution too on a motorcycle is to get a packing a camera cube of some flavor and put it in some sort of a either your your side case. Yeah. Or if you're using like the Moscow Moto, one of their duffels that they have to put it in there, and that's a very a, a great way to carry. Yeah, there are a bunch of companies that make sort of a roll your own situation. Tenba makes one called the BYOB as in bring your own bag. So like, Mm. it's just a, it's just a padded device with with movable dividers in it. So you can set it up for your camera and your lenses, and then throw it in whatever you want to throw it in. And they have different orientations. So they have some that open from like the skinny side, they have some that open from the big side. So it's more like if you have it in a backpack, or if you have it in a flatter piece of luggage, um, they're super convenient. Um, there are even some companies like Shimoda, which makes camera backpacks, but they don't come with the camera cube. You pick what camera cube you want to put in it, uh, based on your, you know, requirements. I have a Shimoda bag on the way. I'm going to play with it as well. You no, know, I'd never even heard of Shimoda until you mentioned that the other day. Yeah. They, I, I just ordered their 25 liter Explorer v2 bag uh mm. from bnh it should be here uh wednesday and i think i might not like it but there's nowhere i can see it in person it like it seems to meet my requirements from a like a specs point of view but it also looks really uh really aggressive in terms it looks of it's, very it looks very mountain climby yeah you know? Yeah, the hip belt is removable, thankfully, but like the straps themselves do look very mountain climbing. And I kind of want, I have bags like that. And I want something for cruising around Tokyo that looks clean. And a bag like Shimoto, you fit right in. <laughs> it is a Japanese company. Right. Um, but I, um, <clears throat> I want something that looks clean and simple and doesn't draw a whole lot of attention. Um, right. Well, this looks I mean, like a regular backpack to me. That don't you think? Yeah, you I don't think, think the good? Shimoda would draw a whole lot of attention. Um, I just also I was looking at how the straps work, and I don't know if there's a way to put the capture clip on it in an, in an orientation that would satisfy me. Like I said, I, I'm super super picky at this point. I've had several bags, and I, I've now like whittled it down to I think the bag I want does not exist yet. <laughs> Well, the, the thing that happens is, in my estimation, the more experience you have and the more you try stuff, the more you figure out what you want. Yeah. And uh, man, these things, this bag has got crazy thick straps on it. It does. It looks very comfy. <laughs> um, it may, if I like it a little bit, it may replace the bag I have been using to go hiking on because that bag is similar to this other think tank bag is way too much camera storage compared to other stuff storage. Like if I'm going to go on a hike, 
especially in a place like Japan or Hawaii or whatever, where it rains, I'd like to be able to be prepared for that. And then maybe like, if I'm going to work up a sweat, like it's, I'm going to be in Japan in the fall, winter, and spring. So Mm -hmm. I should be prepared for rain and cold. But then if I start to get warm, I want to be able to put my, you know, jacket away and maybe have a snack or whatever. So I don't, and I don't need to carry every lens I own. So I don't need enough space for every lens I own. Um, no, and you got that, but there's a difference between like a system case and, um, you know, something that to shoot out of, let's say. Yeah. And like this, this think tank bag that's right over behind me. Um, it's great to, uh, I've taken it to some portrait shoots that I've done and it's great when I want to carry a backpack that has all the camera crap in it. And then I had my two big rolly cases with, light stands and flashes and modifiers and stuff, which is a whole different world of photography in terms of from what we're talking about normally. Um, So it was a great bag to take for a portrait shoot as a like on the go studio bag. Um, And I think it's beautiful. I love the way it looks. It's very clean. It's a kind of like a Heather gray. It's narrow. So it doesn't bump into a million things and it stands up on its own. The other, the other option is to go with, I mean, not necessarily for you, but people that are listening to us and kind of figuring out what they want to do is go with a motorcycle specific backpack like Kriga and again, use a cube because it's probably the cheapest way to get into a place to store your camera too, because you can get cubes for like 10 bucks on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're internal to the, you know, whatever you're carrying. So they're not going to be out in the weather. Yeah. You just and, need something padded to keep your lenses from smacking into each other and right. whatever else is in your bag. Right. And Krieger makes some really phenomenal, in my opinion, they're the best motorcycle backpack made by far because of the waterproof design, because of the way the straps work in the front. Um, they make a fantastic product. So that's another option too, is to go with something like that. It's just going to be a little bit slower to deploy your camera when you get to, you know, like you, it's easier to pull something out of a tank bag to yeah. take a shot when you're on the bike than having it all in the backpack. And, um, yep. yeah, I don't know. Like we, 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 you and I have talked and I've got, I've turned into a camera or a backpack whore in general, but oh, me too. deal of them are for cameras. And, I mean, like I am moving to Japan in like three weeks, all of my stuff for the most part has been shipped to Japan, except for the stuff that I'm going to take on the plane with me. Mm. And in this room right now are four, five backpacks (laughs) that I'm going to have to whittle down (laughs) before I leave. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it. Like I, I, I probably own three Krieger backpacks alone that are all like nested into one big one. Yeah. Like I have the, the, the R30 backpack. And I think inside that is like an R25 and an R15 or an R20 and an R15. Yeah. I'm definitely like, there's one backpack in here in my room right now that is a hundred percent just crap. I don't want it. I was, I was given it at work one day and I have used it a few times, but I've never liked it. It just, it just needs to go away. What is it? I, it's it's from a company called SOC. Mm. Um, which I don't even, it's a, it stands for something stupid. Like, uh, (laughs) let's just hypothetically, it stands for seagulls of California or something weird like that. Um, but it's there, it's a very tactical looking bag. It's covered in Molly webbing. It's coyote Brown. Um, it's nice in that it has a bright yellow interior. So like you don't lose stuff in it. 
which is side note for anybody looking at stuff to buy to put cameras in contrasting color interiors are nice because then you don't lose shit <laughs> inside yeah. your bag because you know you're always going to end up like dropping little things in there Krigo to me was one of the ones that did that right the interior of their bags are white and yeah. they're removable oh yeah that's right i have yeah i have one of those Krigo bags like that yeah but yeah this weird little soc bag that i've had it for years like I said, I was given it. I just would use it every now and then if I needed to like go on a weekend trip or something, I'd pack all my stuff in there. Every time I went out to my parents' house, pretty much, I would pack all my stuff into that and take that. But I would never want to like carry it around anywhere. Um, partially because I'm just not really into the tactical look. Right. Um, I'm not an operator. I don't want to look like an operator. <laughs> That's not my thing. Um I like, well, you don't want a bunch of Molly hanging off something either, you know? Yeah, it catches on stuff. Um, and so that bag I replaced with the Peak Design 45 liter travel backpack, which I think is a great bag. Um, One of the best bags I've ever owned. And that, and if yeah. you don't know what that is, go on Peak Design's website, check it out. They've got some really cool videos, but I've traveled more with that bag in a single, their, their single camera cube. And as a matter of fact, I can take everything that's in that bag that I travel with. So like Pete, like you were mentioning before, Peak Design makes a bunch of other products for travel. So they make compressible um, packing can, cubes. Can, can you go ahead and continue this conversation? I got to plug the laptop in real quick. Tell yeah, no worries. Yeah. So he's talking about their uh, compressible packing cubes, which... You know, before I had heard about these things, I thought, you know, you open up your backpack, you pack your clothes in it, you move on with your life, you put your toiletry bag or whatever in there. Um, but these packing cubes allow you to sort of separate your, like you could pack by outfit, you could pack by like weather, you could, so you could put like all your shorts and t-shirts in one, and you could put all your like heavier, cooler weather stuff in another and then they have a zipper that allows you to compress the bag down, sort of like those space-saving bags that you hook a vacuum up to, so that when you're done, you've saved a lot of space inside your bag, and you've created a more organized system. So if you want, like, especially the outfit-style thing, you can, like, just put, like, one outfit in each packing cube or exactly whatever it is you want to do so that um, you're kind of segregating all of your different items. Like, maybe all your underwear and socks are in one or you know, whatever, kind of think of them like drawers at your house. And then you can empty the bag out a lot faster. And then you have a usable backpack if you're going to walk around or whatever. Yeah. And then all the, all the stuff that they make for, um, all that packing. So did you mention like the shoe bag? And I didn't mention the shoe the bag. I just, I didn't talk about that either. Yeah. So they make all these things that are designed for travel in general. And, you can, what I like about the bag and the system is I can take all that stuff out of there and throw it in my roller board and it fits perfectly. Like the cube, the camera cube fits on one side of the roller board perfectly. And when we went to, when we went to Portugal, one thing I didn't mention is before Chris and I had got the, um, the a seven fours, I bought an a seven C, which was my first full frame camera, which Sony makes, which is a different form factor. It looks more like a compact camera but it's got a really tiny viewfinder in it. And it, it, uh, I took it to Portugal with me with two lenses or three lenses. It comes with a small kit lens. It's pretty cool. It's a collapsible lens. And then I have a 20 millimeter Sigma and a 28 to 200 Sigma that I brought with me. And honestly, I didn't enjoy the shooting experience with that camera. The viewfinder is really tiny, it, although it's smaller 
and lighter than the a7 IV, it's also a compromise. So I'm very used to shooting with two SD cards and this didn't have it. So I sold it. But getting back to the point I was trying to make was that camera and three lenses fit inside that single cube, which is a longer, thin, narrow camera cube. Mm-hmm. Because of the size of the camera and the fact that Peak Design makes these really innovative dividers that pop over into like a shelf. So I was able to stack two lenses. Yeah, they call them origami dividers. Um, yeah. Because you kind of fold them in an origami-like way. Uh, I think it's an apt name for them. They also make uh, these, calling them C-clips is a weird thing to say because they're so skinny. But they're basically clips that allow you to lock the camera cubes into the sides of the travel bag so you can keep it from being able to slide around and kind of like mate them up to each other and you can also marry the openings of the camera cubes to the openings of the bag because the peak design travel backpack you can get into the center compartment from four different directions it's ridiculous Mm. Um, (laughs) i love it it's crazy though um but you can take the small camera cube and put its opening up against the one of the sides of the bag so that then you have a side access camera compartment and you could actually do that with both sides. You could take yes, two of those. Yes, you can put one. Cubes. I thought about that yesterday. I was like, maybe I should get those. And then I was like, stop buying camera bag stuff. Yeah. Because you, well, I just bought the medium packing cube. You know, I, the, I almost bought, I would have, if I had, if the camera store had been open today and they had it, I probably would have bought it. We shouldn't really talk to each other about camera gear because we end up buying the same shit. But anyway, yeah, it's listen, the point of this whole thing is that we've both been on this journey when it comes to motorcycles, the same yeah. thing with cameras too. And specifically, a lot of the focus initially was using a camera on a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've both now kind of morphed into this this Sony. And the really cool thing about the Sony, and, and I'll just kind of like talk about this real fast because I didn't understand Sony's system at all other than sure. knowing that it was a full frame, is if you start looking at the naming convention, you're like, oh my God, I don't understand. They have all these cameras that sound the same. Let's see. A7R4, A7S3 or 4, and A7C. And that's not even to mention like the A6400 or the A1 or the A9. Right. So in their their flagship cameras are the the A1, but when you get into the A7 series, it's split into two different ranges. Actually, it's three, but two main ranges. You've got the resolution side of the house, which is marketed towards photographers, which has a 50 megapixel sensor. And then you have the sensitivity side of the house, which has a smaller, I think a 20 megapixel. I think it might only be 12. I think it's 20 for the A7 S3, maybe, but I could be wrong. Maybe, yeah. That's it's designed, a lower, yeah. Yeah, it's designed for video work. It's marketed towards videographers. Yeah, and video the and low light stuff. Yeah, because the 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 less megapixels, the more sensitive the 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 um the chip can be made the yeah i mean if you think about it they all have the same physical dimension sensor and the the r has 50 megapixels crammed which is 500 or 50 million pixels crammed into this sensor so they have to be small and very close together which means that they interfere with each other a little bit on the other end of the spectrum you have the same physical size with let's say 20 million pixels on it so each pixel has a lot more space to breathe, is a lot larger. So you get more light, more units of light per pixel hitting each pixel and less interference with each other. 
And so, hence, one of them is designed for resolution. One's yep. not designed for sensitivity. And in the middle is the A7 series, which is considered the hybrid. Yeah. And they claim that the A7 IV is by far the best hybrid that they've made with the best, you know, compromise between sensitivity and resolution. And it's a very capable video camera. So for those of you that say, well, I want to do some blogging too. I want to be able to, to shoot video on my trips because I like to put together these really cool motorcycle videos afterwards. The a7 IV is a phenomenal camera. Yeah. And something else that's important to remember um, when you're looking at cameras and you're thinking like, oh, but this one, if you want to shoot video and you think, oh, this one has more megapixels than the other, it must be better. Um a 1080 screen is two megapixels. So a four a 4K screen, I think, works out to like eight megapixels. So you don't need 50 fucking megapixels. No, <laughs> you just not don't. At all. No, not at all. <laughs> you don't need 30. You don't no, need 12. Even to shoot commercial work, it's not it's not necessary. There's a lot of things that are more important that need to go into the camera when it comes to that. And one of them is the ability to shoot all these different codecs that, that are out there for video, the ability to shoot, you know, 4k at 60 frames a second, or even in some of these cameras, not necessarily the ones we're using, but 4k at 120 frames per second. So, yeah, you know, and now the black magic cameras are shooting five, six, seven K reds are shooting at eight K, you know, it's just incredible. Yeah. Um, so I think a, a decent question. Obviously, you and I have used each other as resources a lot of times on this sort of stuff. But like, what are some of the best resources you can think of for somebody that wants to learn more about all of this stuff? Well, off the top of my head, one of the best resources for for equipment and for reviews and purchasing is a website called DP Review. Yep. I was going to say that's probably my number one recommendation. Yeah. DP Review has got some, and they now for a while, they've had a YouTube channel out as well. Yeah. The the guys that do their YouTube channel are great. Um, yeah. One of them used to do a, a company that called like the camera store or something. I, I saw yeah. a recent video of him. Like I was like, oh my gosh, he's so young. <laughs> but um, yeah. So DP Review would be my top recommendation as well. The other one I like a lot because I've known the guy, not personally, but I've followed him for a really long time is Jared Poland. Oh yeah. He's, Fronos photo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's been around a long time. He's really, he, he does fantastic videos and not just necessarily on equipment review, but on how to take photos yeah. too. He's, he's even he like done guides. a, he's done like a whole, um, he had like, basically he was recording what his camera could see. And he had a body cam on of some kind, like a GoPro or something. And he did like a whole, recording of himself at a shoot and then plays it back and talks you through the decisions he was making at every given moment, why he was changing settings to what he was changing them, what he was trying to, what kind of shots he was trying to get. It was immensely helpful to kind of just like see basically here's what it's like to be a professional photographer doing a shoot. Yeah. Um, he, he's, he does a lot of that stuff. He does challenges where he challenges himself to do some things. I recently watched one where he used like a, like a $10,000, like a digital camera that was super limited in what it could do. Mm -hmm. Like it was manual focus only. It had all this limitations to it. And he said, I, you know, I got to shoot this, like I'm shooting film 36 images in 36 minutes or something like that. It was kind of cool. Um, he's a great resource there, you know, on YouTube, there's a lot of really good, um, resources for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jared Poland, 
who's Frono's photo, DP review. I think I think Petapixel is pretty pretty good. They do a lot of like similar things to DP review. It's a website mm-hmm. that uh, that does a lot of reviews and They've discussion been a of stuff. Time too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the guy that runs their podcast, I think, is also like the guy that runs Petapixel. Um, is a huge Fuji proponent. Um, he's really funny about it. Listen. The other thing is, don't get don't get mired down in the in the fanboys of each individual brand. Yeah, because there's a saying: it ain't the arrow, it's the Indian. Yep. Yeah. It, and, and you can take a good photo with any camera. I have a, one of the, my pictures that have sold the most on Getty was taken out of a twelve dollar Holga, a plastic bodied Russian one twenty film camera, and it's really funny because I was watching a video the other day. For, it was a review of some lens that Sony makes. Mm-hmm. No, it was a Zeiss. It was one of the baddest series. This guy is a photographer out of Hood River, Oregon, and he specializes in elopements. He does elopement type weddings where uh-huh. you tell him, "Hey, man, we want to go to Grand Tetons. We're gonna we want to get married there by ourselves. And we want you to capture it and document it." And he does this, and it's really cool. And when I went and looked at his website, he's got a whole section on Holga images. I actually tagged him in one of the images I shot and he kind of got a kick out of it. But um, it, it's it's really the other thing I would recommend is do what you did and take a class on photography. Honestly, it was so good that that the the, the class I took was from a website called Coursera.com. Um, it's one of those like massive online course delivery systems, sort of like Linda or Skillshare or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the course is, uh, was compiled by the, by Michigan state university. And it's actually, I want to say four courses, but it's entirely self-paced. So, uh, they give you timelines to help you kind of like, if you want to pace yourself out, they give you some timelines, but they, you can do it as fast as you want. So, uh, I used my free time in the pandemic to knock out like five courses in digital photography in about two months. And I think it cost me 50 bucks or a hundred bucks to do the whole thing. Yeah. I did a Joel Grimes class on lighting in which it was really good. Yeah. Um, The other thing I would recommend too is um, well, to talk about the classes for one second, Marcy and I signed up for a Casey Neistat class on Mm -hmm. monthly on on video production because I want to learn that I want to learn what makes a good story. Yeah. One of the reasons I bought the a seven four is we really enjoy shooting video of our travel. Right. And we really want to kind of do more for YouTube. So our friends can kind of share that with us. Yeah. So we took, we're, we're signed up for the Casey Neistat course, which is more money than what you're paying, but yeah. it's a different type of delivery. It's more cl- uh, lessons that are due on certain dates. It's not working mm-hmm. your own pace. Yeah. Something else that is worth doing after I did that, I looked like locally to see if there was anything in person or whatever, like that, like that I could take and, um, local community colleges, uh, vocational education departments or whatever. Um, for example, university of San Diego, sorry, university of California, San Diego has a thing called UCSD extension, which is like their vocational training thing. They teach like web design, graphic design, like certification courses that are not for college credit. And they have several, they have a whole photography, like a whole slew of photography courses. So once I took the Coursera course and got comfortable, I then took a class on portrait photography. They offer classes on landscape and architecture and uh, just gen- general photos. And then like library management, like how, what do you do with all these pictures? So you took a million pictures today. Now, what do you do? Um, 
Adobe Lightroom, Photoshop, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so you might have something local in your area that does that. And those classes were not prohibitively expensive. I think they average around $300 a class. Mm-hmm. So is there any kind of education that you can get to understand the basics of photography? And it's really about light and understanding light and how it, how it affects the sensor or that film. Yeah. And it, I mean, it probably comes as no surprise that the guy that has tried to interview basically every motorcycle safety foundation or Lee parks or whatever school instructor he could find or go to all the schools he could find also likes photography classes. <laughs> right. Well, I, listen, I, I'm like you, I like learning in general anything new I can learn has always been a benefit. Yeah. Another one I want to drop um, on real quick is the strobist david hobby it's strobist s-t-r-o-b-i-s-t.com okay and he's very much about um teaching lighting and i need to take notes on these <laughs> yeah there are some really basic classes he's got on there talks about using your you know a single strobe or a one light source so that's a really good one too and there's some of his lighting courses you you, you really understand how light works and one of the things I learned from my real short foray into doing the, the TV show was how they light stuff for, for television and motion pictures. And, you know, they're using studio lighting. They're using some very simple devices to, to shape light, which could be stuff you could have around your home that you don't even need to go buy anything. Yeah. Even paper, you know, yeah, to, paper, to like, a colander, yeah. uh, like a strainer. Yeah. Anything you can to modify that light. Like if you've got a really great, beautiful picture window and all this light streaming through and you want to take some portraits, you can hang a sheet up in front of that to, yep. to diffuse and cut that light down. And it makes for some great, great pictures. But anyway, I digress. I don't want to go off on a tangent about that because I'll really nerd out on photography. Yeah. I'd like to probably... circle back one just to, this is not a look at me. I was right. This is just a like fact check that I decided to do. Thing? Yeah. Okay. So I looked up the 110 film size and I looked up the sensor dimensions for micro four thirds. Uh, micro four thirds cameras are 17.3 millimeters by 13 millimeters. And 110 film is 17 by 13 millimeters. That's exactly that. 110 is tiny. Yeah. So tiny. micro four thirds <laughs> camera sensors are wee little pixies of sensors. Yeah, um, I'm pretty really sure that the Coursera course, I think the Coursera course is where I learned that. Okay. Um, I never so. knew that. So you I, know. it never occurred to me. And then I was like, Oh, huh. and that literally that when that course mentioned 110 film, I was like, Oh my gosh, I used to have one of those. And then like had this whole sort of like flood of memories as my brain reconnected that particular pathway. And was like, Oh yeah, here's all this other stuff you didn't remember. <laughs> Yeah. And I used to like for film, I never, obviously the smallest size film I ever developed was 35 millimeter, but I had a two and a quarter square camera, a Hasselblad, and I had a four by five. So I was developing sheet film that was four inches by five inches. And yeah. there's digital backs that are four by five inches. Yeah. But, but they're really very expensive. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, Fuji has that, uh, that, Medium, GX4, medium format. I don't remember, but Fuji yeah. has a camera that has a larger than a 35 millimeter sensor. Um, and you know that we we've talked about the vintage iron club in the past, you know, that yeah. the group that I, the, the president of that club, Dan Newcomb is a commercial interior photographer. He does architectural work. Yeah. And he's got a pretty good company, good size company. And he told me the other day that he just bought a Pentax 645 digital, which is a medium format camera. So yeah. I didn't even realize I knew they made that camera years ago in film. I had no idea they made a digital version of it. So hmm. it was just kind of cool. That is interesting. 
Um, but that's listen, man. We I think we've gone a while now. Right? We have. We have about cameras. We could do this for several more hours. This was originally uh, pitched as a shorter show, and we lied to you, everybody. Right. We've been going for almost an hour and a half. And feel free if you got any questions about the stuff we bought or how we like it or what we're using, send us an email. And, yeah, absolutely. And who knows? You may hear one or both of us say, "Damn, these lenses are too big," and start switching back to smaller cameras. Um, I don't know. I hope not. Cause I, I don't know. I, I, t- I took some... a bunch of money and stuff in this, for this camera. So. I know. And I, I took some pictures when I was in Virginia and that I was just absolutely blown away by. So, right. right. Yeah. It's a huge difference when even looking at them, like when we pixel peep, you know, which is, yeah. When you zoom you know, in real close and you're like, you're like, holy shit, man. Look yeah. At the resolution. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right. Well, um, get out and take photos. <laughs> See ya.